This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. Last week's inflation numbers show promise. Inflation is down to 6.4%, a whopping 1.3% lower than the previous month. The stock market rose accordingly. Gas prices are still down, and American manufacturing is up. And so is President Biden's approval numbers, which are also slowly creeping up. So, the president should be riding high. He should be taking his classic Corvette out of the garage and around the neighborhood for a victory lap. But that's not what happened. Attorney General Merrick Garland has now appointed a special counsel to review President Biden's handling of classified records after leaving the Obama White House back in 2017. Garland has asked former federal prosecutor and one-time Trump DOJ official Robert Hur to handle this investigation. Classified documents from the Obama administration were found by Biden attorneys in two locations. Mr. Biden's private office he used after he left the vice presidency and President Biden's home in Delaware. Classified, classified material. Next year, Corvette. What were you thinking? What we are experiencing is a weird moment in American history when the current president and his immediate predecessor are both being investigated by a special counsel at the same time and for basically the same thing though their cases could not be more different let's talk about classified documents and president biden he says he's cooperating fully with a review into how classified documents from the obama administration ended up in an office he used after his time as vice president speaking yesterday the president commented on the matter for the first time since details of the probe came to light on monday people know i take classified uh documents and classified information seriously. I was briefed about this discovery and surprised to learn that there were any government records that were taken there to that office. But I don't know what's in the documents. I've, my lawyers have not suggested I ask what documents they were. And we're cooperating fully, cooperating fully with the review, and which I hope will be finished soon. And uh, there'll be more detail at that time. But Republicans are all over this story, drawing false equivalencies to the way that Trump hoarded hundreds and hundreds of classified documents at Mar-a-Lardo for over a year, even as the National Archives fucking begged him to give them back. Trump ignored a damn subpoena, and it took the FBI search and seizure to wrench those documents out of his tiny little hands. Now, by contrast, Biden's personal lawyers say that they immediately notified the federal government about their discoveries. And now, it'll be up to Robert Hur and his special counsel to figure out how the docs got misplaced and whether or not there was intent to commit a crime. But we can say now that there was zero effort of obstruction of justice since it was Biden's own people who brought this all to light. The first location was his office, part of the Biden Penn Center that had been sitting there for several years. Uh, These boxes were locked up. My understanding is 99% of what was in that office was personal. It included things like Uh, the burial arrangement documents for Beau Biden's funeral, boxes of condolence letters that had been sent to him as vice president. And that's why his personal lawyer was going through it, because they thought it was all personal and confidential. And then that lawyer gets to a box, he opens it up, there's a folder marked VP Personal, not unimportant. 
He opens that up. It says classified. He closes it again and he calls the White House counsel. He says, Houston, we have a problem. They say, call the National Archives. The fact that Biden had various classified documents improperly stored in strange locations like his garage shows just how irresponsible national secrets is sometimes handled when the presidential administration leaves the White House in a rush. And I'm not sure who's keeping track, but when the government doesn't know where the top secret documents have wandered off to, well, maybe it's time to change the fucking system. Good afternoon. I'm here today to announce the appointment of Robert Herr as a special counsel pursuant to Department of Justice regulations governing such matters. In keeping with those regulations, I have today notified the designated members of each House of Congress of the appointment. I'm joined today by John Lausch, the U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Illinois, who conducted the initial investigation into the matter that I will describe today. On the evening of November 4th, 2022, the National Archives Office of Inspector General contacted a prosecutor at the Department of Justice. It informed him that the White House had notified the archives that documents bearing classification markings were identified at the office of the Penn Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement, located in Washington, D.C. We can only hope that President Biden doesn't come to regret choosing Merrick Garland as his attorney general before it's all said and done. Now, I'm supposing that Garland would have already been fired if Biden didn't approve of the work that he's doing, but I personally would be mad as hell. I mean, Garland knew for months that Trump was in possession of these stolen classified documents. And it took two whole fucking years for Garland to appoint a special counsel to investigate Trump. And then just two short months to appoint one for Biden. I mean, no matter how you cut it, in this tale of two presidents, the inequity is staggering. Now, obviously, this is not great for Biden, and he shouldn't have had those documents. Although, personally, I feel like finding a small number of classified documents at someone's home or office is not a big deal, as long as they give them back, which is true for Trump, too. If Trump had just given back all the documents when he was asked, we wouldn't have had a problem, and that's the difference, right? Biden is cooperating fully, turning over all the documents immediately, looking for more. Trump refused to turn them over for more than a year after repeated requests, claims he could declassify them with his mind, lied about them, and even moved them around, which is what led to the FBI search that discovered even more classified documents that Trump had refused to turn over, which makes the GOP attempt to draw a false equivalence between the two very silly. Robert Herr, the man tapped to run the Biden documents investigation, may very well be on the up and up. However, I will warn you that he has his own page on the Federalist Society's website. And more importantly, he's a Trump appointee. Serving as Maryland's U.S. attorney from 2018 until he resigned in 2021, and according to an online biography, her served on the governor's gangs and violent criminal council during that time, and he also led an effort to investigate hate crimes against Asian Americans during the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, hopefully, these two document cases happening in tandem and in real time will educate the public and define the distinct differences between the two men and between the two cases. But now, with this special counsel investigation and McCarthy's goons in the House, Biden might be on the defensive for the next two years. Do you think that the, the, the public at home, do you think they see the distinction between the Trump documents and the Biden documents, or is it all one thing to them? 
And what do you make of the discussion? He says, as a human being, um, it may put, you know, you know, the, the attorney general may think differently uh, uh, about whether he would prosecute or not. But as the attorney general, he's got to do his job. Yeah, I think I mean, I think what he says is accurate. So first off, if you're you know, the good thing is law does nuance. Right. The law does differences. The law can look at kind of differences in what was intention. And that matters. Politics doesn't do that very well. Politics, everything kind of blends together. And what we've learned in the last few years is if you can just throw enough doubt on the wall, that's enough to kind of win your case. So I think from a human perspective, yes, I, I think, you know, for Attorney General Garland, he's going to continue to prosecute, uh, even if you know, the Joe Biden case, if necessary, correctly. Politically, this is very, especially the second batch. I mean, goodness, very damaging for the uh, for the current president. Now, speaking of McCarthy, I mean, the fucking asshole, he's holding on to that little putz, George Santos, like his life depends on it. You know why? Because without Santos's vote, Kevin might not get his way. So here we go for Kevin. Wah, wah, wah. McCarthy telling us that Georgie boy is, quote, innocent until proven guilty, even as the entire state of New York is calling for his resignation. I mean, that takes fucking balls. But then he said George Santos shouldn't resign because a lot of his colleagues also lie. I mean, are you fucking kidding me? Embellishing one's resume isn't a crime. It's frankly how a lot of people get to Congress and we, we want everyone to be honest and again you've acknowledged that and, and you're working for it going forward. Uh, one of the principal critiques I've heard is that a lot of money uh, was donated to your campaign by you. 700000 I believe. Where did it come from? Well I'll tell you where it didn't come from. It didn't come from China, Ukraine or Burisma. How about that? That's great. So where did it come from? <laughs> you're going to be shocked to hear this. Matt Gates didn't really press him on it, but um, even though, again, his own party in the state of New York is demanding that he resign for being a serial liar or possibly worse, Matt Gates knows that the real villain isn't the person making up the lies, it's the people reporting them. But every day that George Santos stays on the Hill is a good day to remind the country exactly who the Republicans really are. Friday, the Washington Post broke that Santos received payments as recently as April of 2021 from a financial services company accused by the SEC of a classic Ponzi scheme. So don't get it twisted, Santos isn't some brave anti-establishment truth teller, as I mean, as some would like you to believe. No, he's just like Kevin fucking McCarthy. He's just a piece of shit. Speaker McCarthy says, well, a lot of folks here in Congress have fabricated part of their resume and Santos will have to build the trust of voters. And he says that Santos will get some committee assignments, not the top ones. Oh, God. Kevin's a piece of shit. And let's just be honest about this because he will say whatever he needs to say to stay in power. I'm not even saying that gratuitously to be mean to him. It's just a fact. Okay, so a lot is happening in Trump land, and I'm going to try to go through it in short order. The special grand jury has finished its work in Atlanta, and they are recommending charges be filed against Trump and his merry band of traitors who tried to overturn the Georgia election results. Now, District Attorney Fonnie Willis will go to a regular grand jury to seek indictments, which, in my opinion, it's fucking awesome. Andrew Weissman, let me bring you in. I, I want to show you some of what um, Fonnie Willis had to say about um, 
not treating different targets of an investigation differently. Let me play this. If you are a member of a gang and you're committing a crime in my community, I am going to make sure that you are held responsible to the full extent of the law. People also seem to think that in society that there are certain people that are immune from prosecution. If you are a celebrity, if you are a high-ranking public official, I guess that there is something strange with me. Lady Justice is actually blind. Um, this is the reality. Early last week, Trump organization Alan Weisselberg, CFO, was sent to Rikers Island for five months. And then, on Friday, the shit keeps happening, the Trump Organization was fined $1.6 million after being convicted of running a 15-year, that's right, 15-year tax fraud scheme, according to the Associated Press. Company subsidiaries like Trump Corp and Trump Payroll Corp were convicted last year of 17 counts including criminal tax fraud, conspiracy, and falsifying business records. Friday sentencing by a New York judge does not directly impact Donald, who, by the way, was at the helm for most of the time that the fraud was going on. The real estate business is not at risk of being dismantled because there is no mechanism under the law to dissolve the company, Kara Skinnell said on CNN. However, a felony conviction could impact Trump Organization's reputation, I mean, you think? As well as their ability to do business or obtain loans or contracts. So, to recap, the accountant gets a little prison time, no time for the boss, and a $1.6 million penalty for a multi-billion dollar company. I mean, that doesn't sound like justice to me, and I'm sure it doesn't sound like it to you. It just sounds like some rich motherfucking white privilege shit to me. The profile brings to light several details, including Kelly's role behind Trump's pivot from trying to provoke North Korean leader Kim Jong-un to befriending him. It reads in part this, Kelly told the president that engaging with Kim could prove once and for all that he was the greatest salesman in the world. In one-on-one -on -one conversations, Kelly tried to gently nudge Trump away from his incendiary language toward North Korea, telling him that he could unintentionally set off a conflict if his language was misread. You're pushing him to prove he's a man, Kelly said to Trump. If you push him into a corner, he may strike out. You don't want to box him in. Now, General John Kelly, the former White House chief of staff who lasted the longest under Trump, said this week that Trump had discussed wanting to use nuclear weapons on North Korea in 2017 and then blame it on another country. So that fucking dummy Trump wanted to attack other countries, then deny that it was the United States who attacked them. But not just once, multiple times, according to Kelly. I mean, Trump makes Kim Jong-un look fucking sane. And the charming Paul Ryan, I mean, he's been out shilling his new book, and he's saying that the coast is clear for Republicans to turn their backs on Trump because he's fading fast. He has... And I'm not blaming this all on him, but he has certainly empowered the kind of yeah. populism you're talking about, smash mouth, clicks, cable hits on Fox, etc., where you're a board member, by the way. Um, he has popularized that. He has em empowered that. We saw it last week. 
So how can this be achieved even within the Republican yeah. Party before you even get to the Democrats? A couple things. He's fading fast. He's a proven loser. He cost us the House in 18. He cost us the White House in 20. He cost us the Senate again and again. And I think we all know that. And I think we're moving past Trump. I really think that's the case. I, do, I can't imagine him getting the nomination, frankly. And I'm, I don't mean this because I, I don't want him to get the nomination. I just don't think he will as an analytical. From Paul Ryan's mouth to God's ears. So please. A former senior aide to Moscow, Mitch McConnell and Rand Paul, was convicted last Thursday and found guilty of helping to funnel illegal foreign campaign contributions from a Russian national into former President Trump's 2016 campaign. I mean, yup, sound pretty fishy to me. I mean, it sounds something like Stephanie Winston Wolkoff has been talking about for God knows how long. But FYI, Jesse Benton, the GOP operative going to jail for this, is married to Rand Paul's niece and was previously convicted of filing false statements as part of a scheme to funnel money from Paul's 2012 presidential campaign to an influential Iowa politician who backed Paul in the state's presidential caucus. So the copy here? Trump pardoned Benton shortly before leaving office. I want you all to pay particular attention because there's going to be times on this floor where there are things that should not require debate and comment. I contend that these are one of these things. There are times to have your name said, to be recognized, to be called upon. This is not one of those things. There are some very serious things that are in this rule package that I think we should be debating, but instead we are fighting again for women's right to choose something, and this time is whether she, how she covers herself and the interpretation of someone who has no background in fashion, because again, it is an, and this isn't a shot, it's inappropriate to wear sequins before five o'clock telling me that I can't wear a crispy, good St. John sweater if it has too many buttons. I spend $1,200 on a suit and I can't wear it in the people's house because someone who doesn't have the range tells me that it's inappropriate. And lastly, Missouri House Republicans have lost their damn minds and voted in favor of a dress code just for the ladies who hold fewer than a third of the seats in the House. Said dress code states that female representatives have got to cover their arms and wear blazers to work. Which Democrats then had this to say. You know what it feels like to have a bunch of men in this room looking at your top trying to decide whether it's appropriate or not? Are we going to have um, Dana be checking our, our um, tags for whether it's a, a knit blend or a polyester blend or does silk count? I mean, this is, this is ridiculous. Lady, you're right. It is ridiculous. It is absolutely so absurd why are you doing it? that we even have to talk about it on the House floor. I agree. In so why did you bring chamber. it up? Why should we talk about something like this? It is absolutely ridiculous. You, you would think, brought this you to would the think, floor, lady. You, you tell think, me. You would think that all you would have to do is say, dress professionally, and women could handle it. You would think elected would officials think. could handle that. You would think, but you know, we're, we're walking around men, here in sequins and velveteen, men, to the lady's point. So what is appropriate, and why do you get to decide? We need to get over the sequins. And now for the main event. I'm always happy to welcome our next guest, the legendary David Korn. Korn, a veteran Washington journalist, is the bureau chief of Mother Jones and an on-air analyst for MSNBC. 
Korn and Michael Isakoff co-authored a book called Russian Roulette, the inside story of Putin's war on America and the election of Donald Trump. He's also the author of four New York Times best-selling books and was the longtime Washington editor for The Nation. So check out his twice-weekly newsletter called Our Land that covers the news of the day and delivers his no-bullshit analysis on everything from DC politics to entertainment. Korn has been published too many times to name, but his latest bestseller, American Psychosis, a historical investigation of how the Republican Party went crazy, is an absolute must-read for anyone interested in history and setting the record straight. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so David, welcome back to the show. And look, I'm sure that you've been keeping close tabs on what's going on, especially in the House of Representatives, since Kevin McCarthy barely made it to speaker. And now we're hearing the news that there are three pages of shadow agreements that McCarthy made with the terrorists in his party. Any clue what might be in those mystery agreements? You know, it's really interesting because there's even people, you know, in the House now denying that there was anything on paper during the, the you know, the, the the chaos over McCarthy's speakership votes. You know, at one point, one of the, you know, renegades, one of the QAnon, you know, uh, caucus types said, we have it on paper. We have agreements with him on paper. And now they're claiming there was no paper and that there's nothing to release those three pages um so you, you know they, they're talking about how they want to increase accountability and transparency in the house but they won't even acknowledge whether they wrote something down or not um of course you know the agreements you know could could well have to do with a committee assignments uh who will get on what committees which is you know very important and also who might not get on committees you know blocking certain committee uh committee uh, assignments for some for some uh it could have to do with you know uh causing a government shutdown or even worse uh triggering the u.s government to default on its debt by not raising the debt ceiling to pay for bills that have already been you know been assumed by by past congresses um so i mean i think it could be a lot of these different things um but it's just a funny you know, just adding, you know, not haha, but funny in that absurd, surrealist way that we see with with Republicans these days, that they won't even, you know, acknowledge whether there was a deal or not. And it also means if there's no, you know, if there is no acknowledgement that there is a deal on paper, that it'd be easier for McCarthy, you know, to renege on it at some point in time. You know, is does anyone believe that it's beyond McCarthy that, uh, that he would say things to win the speakership vote that he might not stick to down the road. I mean, uh, right? So, yeah, absolutely. Um, We've got a very different kind of sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show, a podcast you should definitely check out since you're a fan of high-quality, fascinating podcasts hosted by interesting people. The show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. And there are a ton of episodes you'll find interesting since you're a fan of this show, so I'd recommend our listeners check it out. 
I also recommend our listeners check out Jordan's conversations with Michael McFall about what it's like to stand up to Putin and Oliver Bullock. He talks about why thieves and crooks run the world. Both amazing episodes. There's an episode for everyone, though, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Jordan's also done an episode all about birth control and how it can alter the partners we pick and how going on or off the pill can change elements of our personalities. The podcast covers a lot, but one constant is his ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life, whether it's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity, or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. We really enjoy the show, and we think you will as well. There's just so much here, so check out jordanharbinger.com forward slash start for some episode recommendations, or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. But, you know, one of the things that we're all hearing, and it's funny that they would say, well, it does exist, it doesn't exist. The thing that I found the most interesting and perplexing at the same time is that only some of the House Republicans have seen this document. Now, others, of course, refuse to talk about it, and that's fine. They can say, this is House business, I don't discuss House business. But there are a whole slew of Republicans right now that say, we don't even know what you're talking about. We've heard about the document, but we haven't received it, which I find very disturbing in the fact that under McCarthy's lead, and if he wants to be an effective speaker, and interestingly enough, I want McCarthy to be a successful speaker. I, I do, despite being a lifelong Democrat, I want every single one of these people to do what they're required to do, and that's to legislate. Because what I know that's going to happen over the course of the next two years, it's going to basically it's going to basically be nothing but obstructionists by this um, freedom caucus, this you know this rebellious freedom caucus that made deals with McCarthy so that McCarthy could ultimately become speaker. But one of the things that they put in was the fact that they could as swiftly take away the gavel from him despite how hard it was for him to ultimately get it dangerous yeah yeah mccarthy i mean i think if you look up the word craven in the dictionary you'd see a picture of kevin mccarthy he basically gave away everything he uh took no hard stands um this and you know it's 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 an interesting dynamic it's like game theory michael that you had 20 21 republicans a tenth of the republican caucus who were committed to destruction to chaos they were willing to blow everything up to get their way and yet 200 members of the caucus who are not moderates it's wrong to call them moderates but they, let's just call them the non-hostage taking 
conservatives in the Republican caucus, um, who were all, for better or worse, you know, coalesced around the notion of Kevin McCarthy becoming speaker and not having a civil war over this. And yet, the uh, they could not prevent it, that the people who want to blow up the House, you know, uh, who want to set fire to it, still ended up getting their way and getting all these concessions out of Kevin McCarthy. Um, and it, it just goes to show you that, you know, if there's someone in your house with a, you know, can of, of gasoline and a, and a match running around, they, they can do a lot of damage, even if everybody else in the house is a firefighter or just at least a responsible citizen. And this dynamic is going to happen again and again. People say, well, wait a second. If one person can, you know, can now call for the end of Kevin McCarthy's speakership or a vote on it, then maybe it will be a more reasonable Republican who does this because Kevin McCarthy goes too far towards the terrorist caucus. But the thing is, if you're reasonable, you're you're, you're going to tend not to want to blow things up. You don't want to, you know, you may want to cut a deal. You may even be upset. But there are, you know, but you know the 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 reasonable or the non-terrorist, I don't even want to call them reasonable, the non-terrorist House Republicans, you know, could, you know, were not willing to go as far as the terrorist Republicans. And so forth. And so they lost. And that's going to, I think, going to, you know, that sets them up for these major fights coming up on whether to shut down the government, whether to increase the debt ceiling, whether to fund Ukraine, whether to have bogus investigations uh, over and over again, Benghazi, go back to Benghazi and Hillary emails. you know, how are they going to stop the terrorists, you know, the Freedom Caucus from going, you know, overboard in a way that even conservative Republicans don't want to see? Um, we have yet to see a fight now or anything in the, you know, in the this week that would show us that they have a game plan or a methodology for keeping, you know, these these, these insurgents um, these Trumpists, the QAnoners, you know, the extremists, the ultra extremists, because the other Republicans are also election denying extremists, but keep the ultra extremists from waging similar fights. So, uh, good luck, Kevin. And the other point I want to make, because I don't think it's 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 gotten enough attention. I've meant to write about it, but I haven't gotten to it yet. Is that what you know? Everyone talks about how weak Kevin McCarthy is, right? And we all know that we get that. But that what that means is also that it makes people who are aspirants to the throne. Jim Jordan, who didn't want to be speaker now, but might want to be speaker someday, or Steve Scalise, they have a lot more power now. The people who might topple him, who might you know lead a revolt, or who might, if there were a revolt, jump to the front of it, as Eric Cantor was willing to do with John Boehner back in 2011, 2010, 2011, they have, you know, McCarthy's going to have to worry more about the people who helped him win the speakership, Jim Jordan, Steve Scalise, maybe Elise Stefanik and others, because he is so, you know, in such an instable position that it will give these other people more power. Yes, including, so 
There are people who have claimed that they have seen the document, but they're not at liberty to discuss it. For example, Representative, uh, what's his name, Dusty Johnson of South Dakota, Republican, um, who's the chair of the Main Street Caucus. I don't even know what the hell that is. And then they also asked uh, Representative Tom Cole of Oklahoma, also Republican, uh, who's chair of the Rules Committee, uh, who said that he sure it exists because he read about it, but... He's not sure if it's really out there. And then, of course, there's another, um, you know, Ken Calvert of California, Republican, uh, suggested that it hasn't been disseminated to all the GOP members. But I, I raise that point again because those people who have seen this secret three-page addendum claim that one of the concessions that McCarthy agreed to is that three seats— will be set aside for these conservatives on the rules committee, as well as representation for them on the appropriations committee, which is extremely, extremely powerful. This is a real problem because there were, what, six or seven of them? And we know who the people were, the Matt Gates, the Lauren Boberts, the Marjorie right. Taylor Greens. These people... One out of every two will end up either sitting on the rules committee or on the appropriations committee. That's scary shit, my man. Well, I think there's, a, you know, Jim Jordan running the Judiciary Committee and this special select committee, you know, looking at the deep state. I mean, that's scary to begin with. You look at the climate deniers in charge of committees that do climate legislation. Um, you look at people who've talked about getting rid of Social Security and Medicare in charge of appropriations and budgeting committees. Um, so there's, there is a world of scariness out there. And you look, you know, again, you, you mentioned six, maybe the number is 20, whatever it was, the opposition, they are getting disproportionate representation. You know, if you get three, you know, seats on the rules committee, I don't know how many there are, but that's, you know, if, you, if you're six out of 200, you're not getting, you know, that percentage on the rules committee. You're getting a lot more. So, you know, Kevin McCarthy didn't just cut deals. He cut tremendously generous deals to the to the hostage takers. Seems um, like he it seems and, almost like he's um, cutting his own throat on that one, proverbially I speaking. Think, yeah, you know, well, I think I well, basically the you know the hostage takers are saying, "This is our demand: kill the hostage." <laughs> what to say? How do you how do, how do you negotiate with hostage takers who want to kill the hostage? So they ended up not killing him, but they you know basically put a noose around his neck that they can pull anytime they want. So that was like as far back from the kill the hostage as Kevin McCarthy was. Could could bring these could bring these posts, and also the it's not just Kevin McCarthy; it's the entire Republican caucus. Because at any time, the the, the caucus could have also said to to the hostage takers, "Fine, you keep Kevin McCarthy. We're going to nominate somebody else. We're going to nominate Steve Scalise or anybody else, and see what you do then." And but they stuck with Kevin McCarthy, so they were all and you know so they all basically endorsed his methodology in dealing with the with the with the terrorist hostage takers on the extreme end of the Republican Party. Yeah. And look, you brought up Jim Jordan and we know that Jim Jordan has made it crystal clear 
that he intends on setting up this subcommittee to deal with weaponization by the Department of Justice, the IRS, or any other investigative body that has an ongoing criminal investigation um, via the Justice Department because he believes that these organizations are corrupt or acted in a corrupt manner. Now, I've got to be, I want to be really clear to my listeners and to you as well on this part, David. Yeah. I agree with Jim Jordan. For the first time, I think, in a very, very, very long time, I actually agree with Jim Jordan. And as far as I'm concerned, good for him. I personally would like to see this subcommittee checking out the weaponization of the Department of Justice. In fact, my book, which is entitled Revenge, How Donald Trump Weaponized the United States Department of Justice Against His Critics, is exactly what Jim Jordan is proving. The fact that somebody like a Donald Trump, a wannabe autocrat, monarch, dictator, supreme leader, will bring into the fold a willing and complicit attorney general, in this case, Bill Barr, and who knows prior to Bill Barr, to weaponize the Justice Department, the IRS, as they did against me, James Comey, Andrew McCabe, right, to go after critics. So I agree with Jim Jordan. I only hope that the subcommittee is bipartisan and that they don't just look at what's going on currently right now, and we're going to get into all of that as well, but that they're not just looking at the way that the Biden administration or Merrick Garland have been investigating illegal acts by the former president and his administration and inner circle. I hope that they look at it in a wide expanse, which I don't have a lot of confidence in, but that's certainly my hope. What's the last line in The Sun Also Rises? A little little literary pop quiz here. Isn't it pretty to think so in the great Hemingway novel? That's the last line in it. And I agree with you. If you know, listen, I'm a journalist. I've written about the deep state, the CIA, the FBI abuses for decades now. And if there, you know, and I have nothing against oversight, transparency, and accountability of the national security state and law enforcement agencies. That, you know, we always need more of that. I've noted time and time again that the intelligence committees. On the on the House and Senate, both during Democratic administrations and Democratic Congresses, and during Republican administrations and Republican Congresses, have been far too deferential to the intelligence services and haven't done enough oversight, haven't shared enough with the public about what is being done in our name. You know that is a good thing to think about and to pursue in the legislative body. But here comes one of the biggest buts of all time. But that is not what Jim Jordan's interested in. He's not interested in what how they screwed you, Michael. He's not interested in and the IRS not auditing Donald Trump for two years with the IRS uh, uh, commissioner being involved with Donald Trump properties. He has no interest in that. He's not interested in even looking at why the intelligence community was, you know, did not catch the Russian attack on the 2016 election, he is interested in showing that there was no attack and that any you know talk of it was a hoax 
and that the investigations, whether it be about Russia or about Mar a Largo or about overthrowing the election, are all part of a deep state conspiracy against Donald Trump that goes back to 2015 and 2016. That's all that he's interested in. Uh, and so, therefore, he's going to be out there with the rhetoric that 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 mirrors what you just justifiably and righteously said, but that will not be applied in an honest and truthful manner. So we're going to have someone claiming to do accountability and transparency about uh, abuses in government, but he will be doing it to try to undermine current investigations, some of which he might even be a party to, and to go back and rewrite the story about Rush, the Russian attack and and everything else. So it's going to be another Republican shit show like Benghazi, like the you know the fuss over 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 the emails. And the thing is, you know, they're not idiots. They take things that are real. Benghazi was a real thing. And we needed an we needed a, an investigation to see but but it wasn't a conspiracy in which Hillary Clinton purposefully did not rescue the people. There were a lot of institutional breakdowns that we needed to understand so that we could make changes the state department and others and so that God forbid nothing like this ever happened again. Um, it was tragic. And the same thing even with Hillary Clinton's email. It was worth at that point in time getting an understanding of who was using personal email because we were we were shifting as a nation, you know, in terms of our information uh, systems. And Hillary made a mistake. She, you know, did violate some rules. Uh, I'm not sure she did so intentionally. It certainly didn't wasn't that uh, what it may have created a national security um uh, vulnerability but there's no evidence that it ever led to a real national security problem and that should have been looked at and you know and and the department of uh, an IG investigation state department and all that but you didn't need you know 27 Benghazi and Hillary Clinton email investigations you know that was you know, what the republicans have done with a lot of this is give accountability a bad name and so you and I, you know, we want to see good, thorough investigations that are legitimate and not partisan. Um, it's not going to happen uh, with, with, with these folks. Yeah, look, I, I agree with you. I hope that you're wrong. I hope that I'm wrong. But to be honest with you, David, I get nervous thinking that because of these election deniers like a Jim Jordan or a Scott Perry are now running the House that nothing will ever touch Trump, that all of the federal right. cases against him are just going to fade away as, you know, um, as they start their, you know, witch trials against Hunter Biden, against Dr. Fauci, against Kamala Harris, against Joe Biden. Am I wrong to worry about this? Oh, of course. No, no, you're not at all. I mean, they've already talked about impeaching uh, the, the, the secretary of Homeland Security, if not impeaching Kamala Harris and um and Joe Biden, Steve Bannon was bragging months ago that he had the impeachment articles drawn up for Joe Biden. Um, you know, Dr. Fauci is going to—they ought to crucify him. I mean, there's really no other way to put it. This public servant who spent 40 years or longer working for the federal government, who just retired—they're—they're—they're—they're uh, they're, they're, they're out to destroy him. You know, you know. You know, if there's anything less than 12 different investigations of Hunter Biden, I will be 
surprised. Um, you know, and now they're talking about investigating, you know, Twitter and Facebook for supposedly conspiring against Donald against Donald Trump. And there's just so much we I, we could do a whole, you know, week weeks worth of shows on the disinformation that they're putting out there about whether it's, you know, what was done regarding the Hunter Biden story by Twitter um and, uh, and and other matters like that. I mean, Elon Musk unfortunately has been you know, assisting and enabling the formation of this narrative now that Donald Trump is out there saying that, you know, that he's a victim of this massive big tech um, deep state plot against him. It's all rather crazy and it's going to take up a lot of time, a lot of energy. It will cause a lot of headaches for people. With, you know what this is like with legal bills and, and it will be distracting. We have real problems in this country. We need, whether it, whether it's dealing with, you know, the economic and national security threat from China, whether it's preventing future pandemics, whether it's dealing, of course, with climate change, whether it's, you know, how to, you know, constrain and keep Putin in, in, in the box, you know, do something about the horrific war in Ukraine, the war in Yemen. I mean, there's just so much and and, and stuff at home in terms of, you know, you know, medical care for people who don't have it and student debt. There's just so much that we, you know, we could be having decent arguments about, and what the best policies are and how to handle all these things, uh, manufacturing. And, 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 and they're just going to, you know, this stuff is going to suck up the oxygen and it is going to make it hard for the house to focus on, on anything else. And it will further divide our tribalized politics, you know, make people, you know, go back into their corners even, even more so. Um, so, you know, it's interesting. I saw that, you know, pre, you know, Biden's approval ratings ticked up, you know, up to the high 40s, you know, you know, uh, you know, in the last couple of weeks, which is, you know, good considering, you know, after the inflation and and, and everything else that we've had um, and the battering that, the, you know, that the right and the and the, and the GOP has tried to put on him. Um, so it shows that, you know, you know, room to grow if he gets over, you know, you know, from the Republican side, though, they got to keep them low. They want to win in 2024. So that's why they're going to do more about Hunter Biden and deep state bullshit than they will about student debt, uh, Medicare expansion and inflation reduction. I mean, it's they want to just keep bashing him. They have the tools to do this now. I've been saying since Election Day, as as much as uh, Democrats were celebrating that it wasn't worse than it was, that just by winning the House with any margin would give would allow the Republicans and the extremists to weaponize half of the legislative branch against the rest of the nation. So, look, while Joe Biden's numbers are increasing, Donald Trump's numbers are decreasing. And there's so much out there, even Republicans that were staunch supporters of his, they're just sick and tired of hearing his name and sick and tired that every time his name comes up, that it just creates more and more headaches. And it's almost like Trump fatigue. So my question to you, David, is this. McCarthy said after winning the speakership that Trump was there all along with support for him. And of course, why not? First of all, I don't think it's true, but McCarthy said it. My real question is, why won't the Republicans just quit him? I mean, because here's another off-ramp, and McCarthy just didn't take it. 
if you think about it, yeah. Trump lost them so much in the midterms. The question is, why are they still holding on to him? Why are they all still beholden to him, despite the fact that he's a loser for them? I, I, I think uh, it goes back to the Republican base. I think, you know, the Republican base, and this was the point of my book, American Psychosis, that we talked about in the past that came out a few months ago. I think the Republican base has, has been radicalized over the last few years and couple of decades to believe the most uh, extreme nonsense, um, paranoia, conspiracy theories, and to nurture the most fact-free grievances. And the base is not every Republican, but it's a big chunk of it. And if you and and they and I think Trump still has a deep hold on most of the base, not all the base, but most of it. I mean, there's some deterioration, but and so Republicans worry that if they take a stand against Trump, the base will rise up against them in their own states, particularly in their own congressional districts, and perhaps, you know, primary them, particularly in these gerrymandered districts that favor Republicans and conservative Republicans. And I also think that if the Republican Party were to turn on Trump, Trump would turn on would turn on the Republican Party. And that would mean telling millions of people not to vote for the Republican nominee if it's not him, and also not to give money to the Republican Party. And even if a couple, you know, even if several million of his followers heeded his call, it would totally screw the Republican Party. They need, you know, they, you know, they need every vote he pulled in last time and a few more. And sure, if, if, if a non-Trump Republican might get some more independence of people in the middle, but uh, Trump would make sure that millions would leave the party with him. With the, if he, I don't know if he would run again as an independent or run a former third party, but he is, you know this, Michael, he's a chaos. And if he can't, if he's thrown out of a deal, what does he do? He tries to destroy the deal, right? So, right? So, so. You know he. You know they once once in bed with someone like that. It's you know once in bed. It's like going back to what we were talking about earlier with the hostage takers who are arsonists in the house. Once you let someone in the house who's willing to blow up the house, if he doesn't get his way, you're kind of fucked. You know it's because you can try to show him out of the house and he'll just say, "See that stick of dynamite? I'm gonna blow it up." Because well, then you'll be blowing yourself up. Well, I don't fucking care. You know, so but, but David, there's a, there's a mistake here that a lot of people are making in terms of these polls. And you know how I feel about polls, right? I yeah. think all of them are full of shit. I don't think there's really any significant value to them. However, every now and then, you do come up with something that makes sense. They did ask Republican, the Republican base, about their feelings on Trump in terms of favorability. And you're 100% correct. At first, he was like at 90% favorability amongst that specific base. And I'm talking about like that 28% base that he has so locked up. But that 90% is now down slightly below 70%. But the real keppa to this one is there was a Quinnipiac poll that was done. And again, you know, I hate all of these polls, but yes. it showed that Trump's biggest problem right now in 2023 
as they're going to be entering into conversation about the 2024 election is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. And the fact that DeSantis is dominating him in all of these polls in a head-to-head primary by somewhere around 23 to 25 percent, 25 points. So it's like 56 to 33 or 57 to 31. It's insane. Now, I'm not a big fan of Ron DeSantis either, but what it shows me is that They're looking desperately for somebody else, which is why I asked you the question, why are they still holding on to him when he has cost the party so much? Yeah, well, I I do believe a lot of Republican voters are looking for someone else. Um, You know, these polls, you know, you you caveat the polls. And also, these are the numbers now when DeSantis hasn't been under the spotlight, hasn't had a lot of scrutiny. And it's also before... Donald Trump has gone nuclear on him. We saw what happened in 2015 and 16 when, you know, when he went after all the other Republican contenders. And, you know, I don't, I don't think he'll be as effective with DeSantis as he was maybe back then because it's a little bit of an old you know, game now. But he still, you know, we haven't seen DeSantis under, under fire. So it's basically the Donald Trump, you know, in these polls, it's the Donald Trump, you know, versus the, De- the DeSantis, you think, you know. Um, so but but any in any event, I still go back to the fact that, OK, if you know, if there's a poll showing him 50 or 30 over 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 Trump, those 30 with Trump are really, really, really with Trump. And when Trump says to them, you know, if he loses to DeSantis, don't vote for DeSantis or don't give money to DeSantis or it was rigged. The only way DeSantis won was because he rigged the rules in these primary states. Those people, right, those people, those, yes, it is, it is. But those, these people will stick with him through a lot of that. And so therefore, um, you know, the party, you know, has, you know, you know, Trump is, you know, it, it, he is the guy. He is a suicide bomber. He, he He's wearing a vest full of dynamite. And if he doesn't get his way, he'll walk into the party, you know, conference, convention or whatever, and pull the cord. How scary and, you know, is that? How scary is that, that this was the former president? Now, let me move on and ask you this, because it hasn't taken Republicans long to start playing out their agenda. But why are they so focused on abortion when it's so clearly so unpopular with the voters? It cost them, in fact, the midterms. I mean, pro-abortion ads helped Democrat, for example, Aaron Roos with the special election in Virginia just this week alone. So is is Republicans focus on abortion largely symbolic or are they seriously trying to overturn abortion across the entire country? Well, I think it's both. And before I get to that, to me, what was amazing was their first bill was to defang the IRS. You know, you know if you, have you tried? I know people have tried to call the IRS in the last couple of years. You can't get through. There are too many calls and not enough people to receive them. And also, we know that billions of dollars in tax revenue are being lost because high income earners like Donald Trump and others and corporations are not being audited. But yet, you know, so this was something that the Democrats addressed in the um, 
you know, Inf- Inflation Reduction Act, and they added money for uh, bolstering the IRS. The Republicans in the right wing have come out and said it's to put 87,000 new agents who will come after you. Well, actually, they've been lying. It's not 87,000 agents. It's a lot of other employees over a course of 10 years, um, not just agents. And, you know, they won't be going after the 40,000 a year earner. Uh, they're going to go after the, 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 the big targets. That's the point. Uh, so, But they come in and they just say, you know, I mean, I don't know if there's anything more on brand for the Republican Party under Donald Trump than to say we want to help tax cheats, wealthy tax cheats. But they did that. Now, you mentioned abortion. And, you know, my, I, I tend to think this is a very rough calculus on my part, calculation, that half the Republican Party are abortion extremists for policy reasons. They believe it. They believe it. They want to stop abortion. They believe it's murder, whatever it is. And it's really, really, really important to them to do that and to impose their view on the rest of secular America. They just can't, you know, they they see it that way. And I think it was Scalia in the Supreme Court when he was around, uh, maybe Amy Barrett. But, you know, and and you see that in members of Congress. The other half, are people like Donald Trump, who probably don't care, or maybe if it happened in their family, they'd be happy to pay for an abortion. I'm sure, I'd be surprised if Donald Trump has never paid for one. Um, maybe you know anything about that? I don't. But, I don't believe. I, they, I I am in my tenure with Donald Trump, including the two years prior to that. I have never known him to pay for an abortion. I want to be very clear about that because I get that a lot on my social media. I want to be very clear. Every single shitty thing that happens, Donald Trump doesn't have to be the poster child to shit, right? He is who he is, and he is a shitty human being, if you could even call him a human being. But that doesn't mean that he's out there, you know, um, popping out abortions and so on. One of the things that's interesting is he actually wanted, he wanted Marla, but hear this one. He wanted Marla to abort Tiffany, which is why he had so little to do with her. He did not want to have a child at that time. That's the stories that I heard, but I am not aware of him ever making a payment. Okay, point point take, point taken. But my my larger point was that... um, that those other half of the Republicans who probably don't either don't care or you know would have an abortion or pay for one or support a family member had abortion, they do it for political purposes because they can't win without the evangelical vote, and they just know that. And in fact, I you know you were there. I think you know Trump, you know you know going all out on abortion, post abortion in 2016, which I don't believe he believed. And putting out the list of Supreme Court nominees that the you know evangelicals, particularly the anti-abortion evangelicals, uh, wanted. I mean, there were some. I mean, I wrote about this in my book. There were some evangelical leaders who were opposed to Trump at the beginning of the primaries because they, yeah, because they did not believe him. But when he actually put out that list, they said, okay. Does it matter if we what 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 he, we what what he thinks personally? If he's committed to this publicly, this is what we want. So I think that's about half the party. They do it that you know that way, and half the party are are true believers who want to impose those views on the rest of us. Yeah, and look, I was there. 
I was the one who actually organized. I was on the phone the other day because I remained friendly with both Jerry and Becky Falwell to this day, despite our differences in areas like abortion. But we've been friends for many years and we allow each other the respect to have your opinion. And I respect their opinion. They certainly respect mine. But I will tell you the thing that we both agree on is that the anti-abortion movement has become terrifying in the fact that they become violent by nature, and that's backed up by the Supreme Court. I mean, I ask this question all the time and to many of my guests. How is the Supreme Court, I mean, still insulated from the reality of what Americans want? I mean, why can't we hold their feet to the fire when so many of us are against what the court is doing? You know, it's then the court as designed is not supposed to be influenced, influenced, which, of course, we know that's not true. There's a lot of politics that goes on there. But we've seen. I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, again, this comes a little bit out of my book, American Psychosis. Um, In 1973. Go back some history here. Roe v. Wade. And, you know, it, it made abortion legal. And the evangelical movement, the new right, the religious right, kind of rose a bit in response to that in the mid-70s. And they believed that if they could elect their person president and gain power in Congress, they could outlaw abortion legislatively. That's what they believed. That was their aim. And lo and behold, they got Ronald Reagan elected president in 1980 with tremendous amount of evangelical support, and he was very supportive of the evangelical movement himself. So uh, it all seemed to be working. And then Reagan, you know, didn't press to outlaw abortion legislatively. He knew there weren't the, 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 the and his advisors knew there weren't the votes for this. There would never be the votes for this. You know, it would ruin the Republican Party if they tried to do this. And so, you know, he, you know, talked a good game and gave symbolic wins to the to the evangelicals and the anti-abortion movement, but he didn't move to outlaw it or outlaw pornography, something else they thought he would do. They really thought he would do this, Jerry Fowell Sr. and the others. And so their strategy shifted. They saw, well, if we can't do this with the president and Congress, how about the courts? The courts just made it legal. We, maybe the courts can make it illegal once again. Um, at least get rid of Roe v. Wade. And they started on a 40-year campaign to put conservatives on the court. And and, and the, you can compare the conservative movement and the liberal movement, and how they spent money and how they strategized. And the right always cared more about the courts, particularly the Supreme Court. And it took them up until Donald Trump with that list that we were just talking about to finally succeed and get that supermajority where they can now, you know, through the courts, you know, fight to outlaw or at least to protect laws that that criminalize or or severely limit abortion. Um, So that's, you know, you know, so the way to counter this now is by even having super majorities in Congress, which you can pass laws that legalize abortion again, or, or by, you know, bringing the courts back into some sense of balance after they swung so far to the right, particularly the Supreme Court. Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, I think it was the Heritage um, Foundation, the one that provided uh, Trump. I know that there's two different organizations, but I was in the office when uh, Trump received a 
pretty significant list of judges. And it wasn't just for Supreme Court. It was also for federal court uh, appointments. Yeah. And he just sat there. Look, what did they do for him? They did his homework. And anytime you do Donald's homework for him, he's just going to use it. And so he's just yeah, crossing yeah, yeah. names off. He didn't check out who any of these people are. They were, on the, they were on the list. It was provided. It was wanted by the evangelicals who provided him the support that was able to get him into the victor seat you know, for the White House. And so he was going to honor that because his goal was just to continue to build his base. Now he had the evangelicals. He was then going to go after the next group. We'll call them white supremacists, right? It didn't make a difference as long as that he would have enough votes for the re-election. Now, I want to ask you something because just recently we learned that Biden as well had a whole series of classified documents I can't say in his possession. I know that there was some that were at the Penn-Biden um, building. Uh, there was some others in a law firm or what have you. But this is and a there real... there were some they found just recently in a, in a, a couple, a handful, in a garage uh, in Delaware that were intermixed with you know personal items. You know, that, so, to me, you know, so I want to bring yeah. up the question to you, to ask you, because, right, so... Biden has now returned these classified documents to NARA, yeah. to National Archives, and it seems, you know, to have been an oversight. And I have my own opinion onto this. I think if anybody should be held accountable on both sides, I would say that it's NARA. And I don't understand when a president leaves the White House, Trump left yeah. with 33 boxes. Why not have somebody stand there, go through the boxes with a camera? There's nothing in there. It's not his dirty underwear or what have you. Nobody gives a shit. They get to check to see if there are documents that are in there. All right? Plain and simple. I don't understand what the hell these guys are doing. The problem, the problem as far as I'm concerned, it's laziness on their behalf. But my real question to you is... It's just going to now bolster the Republicans that basically want to whitewash Trump's Mar-a-Lago theft. I mean, could it end up? Do you think that this could end up keeping Trump from prosecution because Biden I did mean, it I, too? Yeah, I mean, we've already seen this um, happen in the last couple of days. Republicans saying, "How come there's no FBI raid of the Biden properties?" Well. Because Biden gave him back and Trump wouldn't. That's why there's no raid. I mean, it's a pretty simple question. Um, and, you know, there were, you know, we're talking about, you know, last count, uh, you know, in the tens, not in the hundreds. And we also don't know what they were. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's not, it's not apples and oranges, but it's certainly, you know, gigantic apples versus very little crab apples. And, uh, but yet they're going to use this uh, to try to make it seem equivalent and try to say, well, you can't indict. Trump because of this because it happens elsewhere uh where you know you you know as a lawyer much of criminal law is based on intent Biden has shown no intent to take these things maybe he did but we haven't seen any intent or to hide them and not return them we know that Trump intended to take this material because he said he did and then we know he didn't turn them back when he was asked for this material because he so, said that uh, they were because he said that they were his and that he yes, wants they, them back. Yeah, and they and they're not you, you papers. You know the law is very clear on this. 
papers when you're a president are not yours. It's just like, I mean, I've used this you know, uh, analogy before. When you leave the White House, you can't take the resolute desk with you if you have from the Oval Office. If you do that, that's called stealing. It doesn't belong to you. You know, you know, the couch in the in the Oval Office doesn't belong to you. Uh, yet, and these documents which come across your desk don't belong to you. I mean, you know, anybody who works for a corporation, corporate files come before you. Uh, they don't belong to you personally. They belong to the corporation. Um, so it's, it's really pretty basic stuff. But nevertheless, we know what's going to happen already. You know, shortly before we went on air, they appointed a special counsel. Merrick Garland announced a special counsel. It's going to look into the Biden thing. I think that may be going too far without any semblance of intent. Uh, but nevertheless, and we know how special counsels work. Sometimes they are, you know, confined and do their job quickly. Sometimes they metasize, you know, uh, metamorphosize into giant other things. And of course, no matter what happens on the Biden front, the right is going to say, well, you're not doing what happened with Trump, or if Trump gets indicted, he should be indicted. I'm just hoping that this doesn't affect the decision made to prosecute Trump or Biden, that, you know, that that decision is rendered honestly. You know, we have Jack Smith, who is the special counsel appointed by Merrick Garland, who's investigating uh, Donald Trump. And for justice to work, he needs to look at the case and decide on the merits of the case whether prosecution is warranted or not. Not on all the other crap that's going to be happening around the Biden stuff. Right. And I believe that the uh, special counsel, I think his name is Robert Herr, uh, H-U-R. Yes. I think he was the one that Merrick Garland announced uh, is going to be the special counsel in this matter. But, you know, look, I, I stand in mixed company here because I could understand the Republicans' arguments. I could understand if Trump is going to be charged with taking the documents. And I know everybody keeps saying, yeah, but look at the number uh, and the classification of the documents that were found, you know, at this Biden Center in Pennsylvania versus at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, even if there's one document that's sitting in Biden's home in Wilmington, that is an unsecured national security issue based yeah. upon the top secret document. And we've seen others like Reality Winner having one document and getting a five-year sentence. Now, I'm certainly not looking to see Joe Biden get jammed up, but I really yeah. do believe that based upon the technological advancements that we have made over the last 50-plus years, the fact that somebody can walk out of the White House with 33 boxes, and now I'm referring to Trump, 33 boxes right. unchecked, just fuck it, put it on to Air Marine One, send it off to Air Force One, send it off to Mar-a-Lago, unpack it there, sit there and fight with him over these documents because you know that they're there, and then not do anything about it. I really hold whoever is in charge of NARA responsible. Do your fucking job, man. All right? Okay, okay. I, I, I don't disagree with that. I want to raise uh, an adjacent point, and that is, you know, we are a country of rules and laws. Rules are different than laws, correct? And there are all sorts of standards uh, for government action that are not necessarily laws or we haven't been enforced as laws because we haven't needed to. 
And so when you pass the Presidential Records Act and say these records have to stay here, you can't take them, the presumption is, of course, the president or next president is going to abide by that. Who would, you know, who would, who would accept? Who would would accept anything less? Right. Less. Yeah, that's a, you know, it's like the, it's like, you know, the ethics regulations that govern people in the White House. If you have, you know, a conflict in your stock portfolio, you're supposed to work with the ethics experts in the White House to get rid of that conflict. You know, you don't, if you don't, you don't go to jail. It was just always assumed, here are the rules. You will live by these rules. But yet we saw with, you know, with Jared and others that they just said, screw it. We're not going to bother with this. You know, you can't lock us up. And so, um, you know, your point about looking at those 33 boxes, you know, is valid. And obviously they should have been looked at. But, you know, I also wondered to what degree whether NARA had just assumed that people work for the president of the United States when they pack up his material, they know you put this document here and that document there. And certainly we, you know, and, but it doesn't surprise me, particularly in the Biden case, given the flow of documents and, uh, and having worked at presidential archives for research and all this stuff, I know I've seen documents misplaced. And I know there are people have often found classified documents while researching books and things that they shouldn't have found. It's only because there are millions and millions of pages of documents. And even if you get 0.1% of these wrong, you're still talking about thousands of documents being mishandled, misplaced. So it doesn't surprise me that, you know, if they're packing up a vice president's office and there's a document that's been misplaced in his office by somebody, that it ends up in a file that goes off where it shouldn't go off to. This is why it'd be good to know what, you know, to, to, to get a sense of what these documents were, whether there was any reason for him to take them and hold on to them um, inappropriately. We know with Trump that he he's told us that he took these documents on purpose. It wasn't like, oh, I'm sorry, you know, documents get mixed up and things. No, these are mine. So, uh, you know, there's still a lot more to know about the Biden you know, situation. And I and I, I would bet knowing people, I, know, I mean, I've known people who worked at the National Archives for many years now, that in coming transitions, <laughs> there could be a lot more rules and input and oversight about document handling. Well, I think and that I, and at the end of the day, this is on narrow as far as I'm concerned and the people that work there and they need to get their shit together. That's what they're getting paid to do. So the fact that, you know, 44 USC, I think it's section 22, says that the president will turn over the documents which belong to the American people. That's great. They're still getting paid a salary to ensure that all the records during the presidential administration is being you know, um, placed yeah, into their yeah. care and custody. And that's just how I feel. But I just want to jump into the, going back to January 6th for a second, because obviously the final January 6th committee report came out. And I feel that, I feel that we haven't heard enough about it, despite, you know, it was all over television, right? And I wonder if there are revelations that the public has missed because of the change in the leadership in the House. You know, what... What will the report end up, you know, do you think it'll have a lot of impact on, say, 2024? And also, DOJ's special counsel, Jack Smith, is on the case. 
But can the but can the House now that it's changed? Can they somehow shut down the results of the investigation? And lastly, this Rudy Giuliani has just been subpoenaed. Right, that's a start. What do you think that they do with him? Well, that's a that's a lot there. Let's uh, break it down um, a little bit. Um, yeah, I think I think the January sixth report was not about changing minds. But I think it was about reaffirming the narrative and the basics of the narrative that, you know, Trump, you know, lied repeatedly, pushed the big lie uh, publicly, and that behind the scenes engaged in multiple, not one or two, but multiple plots to overturn the election and incited the riot through his actions, public actions. And then I think most chewingly, did nothing while Congress was being attacked. Literally did nothing. In fact, seemed to um, wanted seems to have wanted to exploit it for his own purposes. And there's probably even more reporting that could be done on, on that particular piece of this. So I think that narrative is was really bolstered. Now you know the 20, 30 percent of the country that's with him are you know they're, they're not going to be. They're impermeable. They will not be, this will not affect them. But I think that those, the rest of us, you know, as we think about January 6th and, and, and the end of the Trump presidency, this was, this bolstered and reaffirmed those views. I think within it, you know, there are, you know, items of, uh, of, about Giuliani. I focused on a piece recently on Scott Perry, the congressman from Pennsylvania, who was one of the, you know, holdout votes in McCarthy. I mean, he was up to his neck in Donald Trump's efforts to force the Justice Department to falsely state the election had been stolen, that it was fraudulent. And here's a sitting member of Congress who was trying to collude with Trump and and compel the Justice Department and force out the attorney general, the acting attorney general at the time, to make this happen. And I don't think. Scott Perry has gotten enough public attention for this. He was on the Sunday show uh, this past Sunday, just, you know, like a guest. Here's a guy, you know, who was a co-conspirator with Trump um, in an attempted coup, political coup. And yet he's being treated respectfully. So, I I mean, so I, I maybe some aspects of that, of the report will will seep in deeper with time. But um, I think, you know, so much of what happened in January 6th, we saw with our own eyes, whether it was Trump's lies or his incitement and his, you know, doing nothing, um, that you don't need more bombshells. And it's just that the Republicans and conservatives refuse to acknowledge reality. Um, you know, then, you know, you, you know, Giuliani, you know, being subpoenaed and what Jack Smith is doing. Um, I mean, it seems from all outward appearances that Jack Smith is running a pretty serious uh, investigation, both of the document theft at Mar-a-Lago and, you know, efforts to overturn the election. Uh, I believe the January 6th report, you know, makes it clearer why why this investigation needs to happen and why it may end up with um, with indictments, if not of Trump, but of, of other people as well. Um, so I'm, you know, 
right now I'm in the wait and see position. I, you know, you can't judge Merrick Garland and Jack Smith until there is a resolution and you see whether they, at the end of the day, they let everybody go or they indict some people and others, or they round up everybody. So, uh, I, but I do believe that what needs to be done in that sort of investigation is occurring at this point in time. Okay, then let me switch gears for a quick second and talk to you about the probable biggest disappointment in the entire Republican Party right now. It's hard to pick out which one, but it has to be somehow George Santos, right? I mean, this is a guy who wasn't vetted before ultimately being elected into the House of Representatives from my state of New York. Right. And now the New York Nassau County Republican Party are saying, as well as many other members of the House of Representatives, that they want his resignation immediately. Nevertheless, we have again Kevin McCarthy, who's now jumping onto the Santos bandwagon and saying, and I'm going to quote, innocent until proven guilty. I mean, to me, And I think to everybody, Santos really looks guilty of a lot of things. How do you see this all playing? How do you see this all playing out, especially as Santos refuses to go? I thought McCarthy's line there was incredibly disingenuous and disappointing. You don't have to be guilty. You're guilty. Uh, You're innocent to proven guilty when it comes to a criminal matter. You're not innocent until proven guilty if you lie, you know, or do something wrong. If, if you know, if he got up and took off his pants and defecated on the lectern, he's not innocent until proven guilty. He did something pretty stupid. And his lies, whether you look at his resume, you look at everything he said, from playing volleyball for Baruch College to working for Goldman Sachs. I mean, these are all proven lies. His money trail is completely mysterious, how he got $700,000 in personal money to loan to his campaign, how he declared $3.5 million and $11.5 million from a company that he's given contradicting explanations of that he set up and that was in existence, he says, for only 10 months. Um, I have a piece out today with my colleague Noah Leonard when we found that he created a business with his campaign treasurer, a woman named Nancy Marks, who is the top GOP operative, to try to cash in uh, on a challenger to AOC in the district kind of next door when you know when, when in, in 2022 and they made $100,000 off contracts with that country with that campaign. But there was a lot of shadiness and the use of what seems to be shell companies, and he got involved with people in a company that he had been involved with, that had been shut down because of a Ponzi scheme, although I have to say he was not implicated in it, but the company was. Uh, it's a real tangled web of corporations and money flows that are, at this point, really hard to discern. The story came out on motherjones.com. People can look it up. Um, read the, I read the it, I read it, the article, and it's a it's it's a it's a, like a nail biter. You sit there and you wonder. Why is this man wearing a congressional pin? I mean, that's yeah, to well, me the thing that bothers me the most. I, you know, see, I, I having studied his what we can, what we can find so far of his personal 
finances, his business finances, and his political finances. I can't believe that an investigator with subpoena power won't uncover things that will get him in trouble. And right now we know that the local DA, county DA, uh, the state uh, uh, authorities, and the federal authorities are all looking at, at what I've been looking at. And probably other things. So I don't. I, I would. I don't like to bet. I don't like to make pre- predictions. But I'm not sure. Two years from now, he'll still have that pin, Michael. I think there's just a lot there um, that that looks very, very shady and suspicious without anyone having subpoenas and able to look beyond what's been made public. So, and I think it's you know it's actually disgraceful. That Kevin McCarthy and others out there are, you know, Matt Gates today, and uh, I was doing this too, are out there defending Santos, you know, with a majority of only um, four votes. Uh, McCarthy needs every member he can get. So he, you know, and I think if you got rid of Santos, that seat can well go back to being a Democratic seat. Um, so he would still have, he would still have what he needed in order. He, I think he have what, three or four instead of five, whatever it is. But but people, people die, people change parties. You know, when you, when you, when you, you know, people bolt on certain votes, when you, when you're that, when you, when your margin is that small, every member counts. Um, every sperm is sacred as Monty Python was saying, right? So, so he, so, so he will put aside all notions of good government, transparency, accountability. It looks to me as if uh, George Santos misled, if not lied, on the on the financial disclosure forms he filed with Congress. Now, doing that is a criminal violation. Okay, what I'm saying is, you know, Kevin McCarthy. They talk about accountability, transparency, and all this. It's out the window. It's out the door when it comes to George Santos. Yes, I, I totally agree. And it's stupid on their behalf because, once again, they're just damaging the reputation of the Republican Party. But, David, let me thank you. The hour goes by quick. You know, um, I'm honored to have you back. You know, Bureau Chief Mother Jones loved the articles. I recommend um, every one of my listeners to, you know, to check it out, to check out David um, on Twitter, on his Facebook, whatever it might be, uh, because your writing, I have to say, your writing is fantastic, including your book, American Psychosis. Thanks. And let me just tell people, because I didn't mention it earlier, that I have a a newsletter called Our Land. And if they want to sign up for that, they can go to davidcorn.com. That's what I meant to say. David, thank you so much. Great to see you, my friend. Uh, And I definitely need you back very soon because you really bring... Um, you really bring this thing full circle. So I appreciate your um, your insight and your um, and your words. Always great to chat with you, Michael. Be well. Thank you, my man. And now for today's mea culpa. Unless you've been in solitary confinement with absolutely no access to the news, you've heard more than you ever wanted to know about Prince Harry's frozen pecker and how everyone hates Meghan. To be honest with you, I feel sorry for these two. Apparently, they tried to set the record straight, and it just came back to bite them in the ass. Well, such is life under the spotlight, where the tyranny of the press is unrelenting. 
They thought the press was bad in England. Well, welcome to America. I've said this before, but since the age of Trumpism began, our press has gone hyper-fucking-nuts for sensationalism. Trump would have never become president without the press. And this week's Hillary's emails is the Biden document scandal. And I'm only calling it a scandal because that is how the press is calling it. I mean, CNN rushed to bash Biden over this document deal just like the New York Times roasted Hillary for her emails. Fox News is running 24-7, wall-to-wall Hunter Biden coverage. Now, despite Hunter Biden being a relatively low-key guy, who has not been charged with a crime, by the way, and is not employed by the government in any capacity, hint, hint, Javanka, but Fox wants to know, have you seen Hunter's dick pics? The media is running this country off the rails with bullshit coverage of non-existent problems, like the war on Christmas or the ban on gas stoves. Now, why, you might ask, are Republicans going ape shit over the gas stove issue that just isn't real? Because it's today's red meat, culture war fetish without a cause. Now, according to the New York Times, regulators have no plan to ban gas stoves, but Republicans are slamming the Consumer Product Safety Commission for announcing that it will examine the health impacts of the appliances. I mean, seriously, Jesus fucking Christ on a cracker. When does it all end? Ron DeSantis has spent the last few weeks trying to make a meal out of this thin little crap. I mean, despite the fact that Florida is a state with a relatively low, I mean, really low number of gas stoves compared to the rest of the country, nevertheless, DeSantis is mad as hell about it, and he's not going to take it anymore. I mean, talk about a fucking showboater who just wants to keep his big fat fucking face in the news. I mean, period, end of story. That's what he wants. So don't worry about your gas stove. It's not going anywhere anytime soon. But then there's, of course, good old drunken Ronnie Jackson who tweeted out, he'll never give up his gas stove. They can pry it from his cold, dead hands. Come and take it. I mean, written in all caps. And here's a new website for your entertainment. And it's called SaveTheStove.com. I mean, seriously, again, what the fuck? But it reminds me of the old joke. Is your refrigerator running? Then you better go catch it. Another sad, ironic story is that of Diamond of the Trump Circus duo Diamond and Silk. After years of being anti-vax cheerleaders, Diamond unfortunately passed away of COVID. I mean, it's tragic, but nevertheless, it's predictable. And I have to say, I'm actually the one who found Lynette, and my heart goes out. She was really a wonderful person. However... We disagreed on just so much, including her decision to stay with Trump after I explained to her that the guy is just a fucking racist. But I can go on forever, though I won't. Now I'm going to move on to something that also happened, like Herman Cain. Diamond sold her soul to Trump and then died before she could redeem it. And just seconds after poor Lisa Marie Presley died, the anti-vaxxers were all over the news asking, and I quote, how many more of these premature deaths have to happen before people start to question what the cause is? The woman died of a genetic heart failure, but why focus on the facts when you can revel in a lie? And at the end of the day, the truth is all that matters, the truth is all that we have, and it's all that we should want. And as always, 
Thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. Written by Jimmy Jelinek and Paula Killen. Our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. Our executive producers are Jared Gustad, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth. (laughs) 